Welcome to The Expedition. The Expedition is a podcast that tries to answer the question, what is leadership for a better world guided by nature? Today, in this bonus episode, we're doing something special. We're looking at concepts from nature, things that are going on around us without us even noticing it, and try to see how these concepts play out in our daily lives and how they can guide our leadership in the businesses that we work in. All right. So here's another episode of the expedition, and this one is very special. First of all, because we have a guest from overseas. Uh, we had one before, that one was for all the way from the UK, which is not that far. But now we have one from Maine, United States. Dennis Kylie, welcome to the expedition. Hello, Dan. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and joining your community, even if we are in terms of distance a little ways away across the across the waters. Yeah, exactly. So, Dennis, uh, we've been prepping this question beforehand, but can you tell us a little bit about your meaningful place in nature? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I love that you ask everyone this. And it felt really resonant for me because ever since I was a kid, there's always been some place in nature that I've gone to. And when I was a child, it was called the Brooding Rock. And it was down uh, from our house uh, further along the ocean. And whenever anything was happening, my parents would always say, why don't you just go to the Brooding Rock and sit for a while? And so that notion has stayed with me. And now in my adulthood, I have a place similarly. It's through the woods from my house. And to get there, I have to pass by a very large, large eastern white pine tree. And so I always try and stop and take a minute. But ultimately, the place is near a local pond or lake, depending on how we define it. And it's just this really nice spot that we go swimming in the summer and it's also just really comfortable to sit and so we call it um, the swim rock or the, the brooding rock part two and so it's just a very special place that I try and get to almost every day. Oh wow um, I know this but you've also just described it a little bit but you live on an island right? Yeah exactly so I live off the coast of Maine on an island it has four different towns and it is the home for those who maybe been to the United States or are familiar with our national park system on our island is what's called Acadia National Park. And it's one of the largest and most, excuse me, let me clarify that. It is not one of the largest, but it's one of the most visited national parks in the United States. And it happens to be on the island where I live. So it has a lot of mountains and lakes and oceans and forests that come together. And it yeah. takes up about 60% of our island. Well, there's a reason you live there. We'll probably get to that also somewhere in this recording. Um, our paths crossed because you are the founder of something which is called the Eco Psychology Initiative or the Eco Psychology In Institute. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit on, yeah, what what on earth is eco psychology, Dennis? Yeah, eco psychology I think of as a really broad umbrella and in can encapsulate a lot of things. And I think fundamentally it's about bringing people and nature closer, both practically, but also psychologically as well. And the work that I do with the Eco Psychology Initiative is primarily around four different areas. One is the psychology of climate change. 
and understanding that. Secondly, it is what's called ecotherapy or helping professionals uh, use more of nature in their work. Uh, there's a term that I've come up with that may come up later today called psychological biomimicry. And so it's looking at nature's most important principles uh, and qualities that enable it to thrive and then exploring how can we psychologically apply those to our lives. And within that is subjects like leadership, and then the final is looking at kind of some of the deeper, maybe more spiritual relationships that people can have with nature. That's already quite a lot to cover. Yeah, it is a lot to cover. <laughs> so what is the psychology of climate change? How, do, how are these things connected? Well, it's a pretty comprehensive look at, well, one, it's understanding some of the psychological origins of climate change, like how we came to be in this in the first place. And while, yes, there are very practical issues like the release of carbon dioxide into the air, but fundamentally it's understanding the psychology behind what's allowed that. Not to mention it's looking at what psychologically makes climate change really difficult for some people to understand and engage with, be that it's in the future, it's a little abstract, etc. But then also I'm looking at, okay, how do we support people emotionally with the very real impacts that are happening for people and a lot of feelings like anxiety and stress and, uh, you know, there's a number of other ones, grief and sadness and anger and outrage. So how can we constructively process these in a way so that we don't end up kind of feeling overwhelmed, burned out, or, you know, having some type of mental health issue. And then the final component mm -hmm. is how do we take what we know about psychology and apply that to the ways that we are communicating and engaging and strategizing with climate action so that we can be more effective. So this is just one example of what you do with eco-psychology. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about this a lot on forehand because uh, we are both more or less in the same field, uh, using ecological principles, using nature in order to engage with people and help them in whatever form possible, mostly in the psychology area. Um, we have been talking a lot about what topics to discuss, and it's going to be a little bit all over the place, but I feel that as a form of introduction, we should maybe say to the listener that what you know, all these concepts that we're about to discuss, they are in one way or another helpful in our daily lives, right? So we, we are not here to preach whatever we have learned in books and practice, but we are here to help people understand that there are some, there are some topics, there are some concepts and things that you can do while listening to this podcast and going out there and and, you know, engaging with nature and, and helping yourself, basically. Yeah, that's very well said. I am not interested in just intellectual stimuli and banter. Like, I think that's helpful to have some knowledge and ideas. But fundamentally, I'm curious, how do we take eco-psychology and make it really practical and beneficial to our daily lives, whether that be our kind of personal lives or our work lives, or families and relationships? So, yeah, I'm continually interested and focused in my programming of like, okay, how do we make this really tangible and accessible, but also adaptive because everyone across the globe and certainly your listeners as well, even if they share an interest in leadership, like that's going to look and feel very differently. So how do we have a curriculum that's adaptable and diverse to really meet people where they are and that then they can use them like toolkits to bring and incorporate into their work and lives. Because what, I, what I've learned also from some of the courses that I took uh, at your uh, initiative is that 
a lot of concepts that we come across in nature are actually well applicable in our daily lives, even if we are not in nature, right? So there are things happening in nature that we can apply in our daily lives and make us help, that help us feel maybe good about ourselves or understand leadership topics better. So I feel that's also, you know, it's not only about going out there engaging with nature. There's so much to learn from nature that you don't even need to be in nature to apply it in daily life. Yeah, exactly. That's at the heart of what I reference with psychological biomimicry is that if we look at our planet, it's incredibly innovative and resilient and sustainable and efficient and a lot of other qualities. And so it's okay, how do we look Mm -hmm. to the models and examples of our planet and then incorporate them so we can have the very same types of outcomes? Yeah, so I want to start with something that I've become wildly enthusiastic about. Uh, and there's a reason why I say wildly, because the book is called Wild Therapy from Nick Totten. Um, and he describes in the book a concept which says, somehow like uh, makes a relationship between land and our emotional state or our mental state. So basically what he says, if the land is doing well, then we are doing well. Um, you know, if we allow nature around us to be wild, then it we can unleash our inner wildness before there's already a couple of listeners drifting off and thinking, what on earth is happening right now? Nature at its wildest, our inner wildness, what is happening? So maybe maybe we can discuss that a little bit. What it, so what, how does this resonate with you? What do you think when you hear a quote like this? Yeah, I, I love it, by the way, and I have to uh, give you credit because I wasn't aware of it previously. But one of the first things that came to mind is that I think there is a interconnection between the external and the internal. And so when our external environments feel comfortable and safe and peaceful and nurturing, then that's going to directly affect our kind of internal landscapes, so to speak, so that we can similarly feel present and grounded and healthy and peaceful, et cetera. And so I think therefore it's really important that we prioritize kind of the health uh, of the environments that we're a part of and knowing that that will directly shape our well-being. And not to mention that I think you can look at a number of areas um, that maybe are lacking nature or have been denuded and there's waste and pollution and exploitation. And those are some of the very same areas where people have some of the highest rates of disease and illness and sickness and poverty. And it's not, mm-hmm. uh, it's not just a correlation, like there is a direct link there. And so I think it really reminds us that quote in Totten's book that it's so important that we're tending not only to kind of our internal terrain, but also the external one because they each mutually affect each other. Yeah, and that, that makes me think of, I used to work at a bank, and for the Dutch listeners, it's a very large glass building in the center of the Netherlands. And I was always wondering, because we spent so much time and effort in that bank to make the inside of the bank look nice, right? The, once you enter the bank, there's a huge wooden stairs, and there's marble everywhere, and there's plants also. There's, there's some form of nature even inside that building. And they even created a reading room with a living plant wall. So that was really cool and it was really humid there and it, was, it wasn't necessarily very comfortable to sit in, but it was cool because you could, you know, there's a huge green wall and with a live plant that you really felt part of nature. But then 
you sit inside that building and you look around that building and it's just concrete and roads and railroads and it's just i cannot so now that i think of it i cannot imagine that people inside that building when you stare out at that building it's cool to have a cool view because there's 25 stories so you can really look far in the distance and look all over the city but it's so disappointing and even frustrating when i look back at it to look at all this concrete and look at this railroads and it's just it's it's um i say it's stressful in itself to look at an environment like that right yeah so yeah i can imagine when you live on an island it feels much different it, it very much does and as you were talking it reminded me of a couple of research studies that have found just for example people in hospitals and patients who had windows that looked out on trees had much quicker recovery time. And furthermore, those who had been put through some kind of mentally arduous and challenging tasks had also much quicker um, recovery and this kind of more in a, a mental cognitive place when they were able to look at nature as well. And so I think you point out the juxtaposition to that, which is when we're looking out at steel and concrete and they're surrounded by noise and all that, then it's not necessarily the restorative environments that our inner psychology really needs. Restorative, that is a term we need to explain maybe a little bit because we are using it in our field, I think, quite a lot. Um, it also has to do with outer and inner wildness. So w what is the restorative how, how can nature be restorative for us? Well, it's, it's a great question. I was just uh, recording a lecture recently on the subject matter of regeneration. And all of the natural mm -hmm. world has the capacity to kind of adapt and compensate for any type of injury or wounding or some type of suffering. And those abilities to cope and compensate for the challenges that come up uh, is like kind of the essence of regeneration. And I think it's somewhat similar to restoration in terms of we all go through various types of stressors that uh, have adverse impacts on us. And some of those are just unique to us. Some of those might be part of our communities or what's happening in our countries and such. But ultimately, it adds a type of strain and stress to our lives. And that affects us not just physiologically, but psychologically as well. And so we need to find ways that we can regenerate and restore and ultimately heal. And so there is a huge abundance of research right now that just points to being out of doors and being around nature. And this doesn't have to be vast, wild landscapes, though that's great if you can. But it can even just be a city park that those have enormous uh, regenerative and restorative capacities to help us so that we can kind of be more resilient fundamentally. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we sort of regenerate our energies when we are out in nature. And what I also feel is very cool about regeneration is that I'm doing a lot of regenerative gardening and I'm experimenting with it a lot and doing the no-dig gardening for the people who don't know what it is. Look it up, there are very cool videos on YouTube. Um, but what is really cool about regeneration and regenerative gardening is that I have unlearned to do a lot of work so what i so when i looked at my father working in the garden he was always tilling and always you know putting uh, biological but pu putting fertilizer from the chicken coop and you know trying to work with compost and so there was so much work and so much effort we also frame agriculture as being hard difficult labor it's 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 
it's tough, it's true wind, it's true rain, you have to be out there all the time. And what I've learned from regenerative agriculture is that basically regeneration in nature happens a lot when you do nothing. So you just let nature take its course, you cover the soil and you just let the soil work it out herself. And then the most beautiful, the most, the most healthy soil in the world is being created by soils that are un almost untouched and just, you know, you just let them be. And I, so I think when, when I apply that to our daily lives, there's so many times people come to me also like in the programs and I'm pretty sure that you, because you coach people as well, uh, people come to us with questions to say like oh, I'm so, I'm dealing with this and this and I and I need to do something I need to you know we need to talk to you and we need to come up with a plan how many coaching conversations do we have that people at the end of the conversation said I need to have a plan then is where's my plan why isn't something happening and I feel that maybe we can learn a little bit from regeneration and think like sometimes it's all right to do nothing yeah I think that's spot on and I've been interested in this term called regenerative leadership and I think it speaks to some of what you're talking about one that yes all of life entails some hard work but we want to work hard and smart and that's true agriculturally but it's also true in our leadership as well as when we have kind of an awareness of how best to engage then we don't always have to work quite as hard and we can be much more efficient mm -hmm. and effective and in that process to maybe use regenerative agriculture as an example, like by allowing nature to do its thing, it's not necessarily that you're getting less yields. In fact, you can often get more yields, you're sequestering carbon, you're improving soil health, and you have abundant crops. And so I think the same could be applied uh, with our leadership, that just because we maybe uh, aren't as, well, let me say it differently, it's one of those where we can do good and we can do well, simultaneously and it's being much more strategic about how we engage and knowing that sometimes not acting as you said is just the thing that is needed sometimes it's giving a little bit of space sometimes it's maybe delegating uh in ways that wouldn't necessarily seem the smartest way but we're actually kind of acting more in kind of flow with what needs to happen and you know another term that I use a lot is when we think about seasons and cycles and that nature works very much mm -hmm. in seasons yeah. and cycles. And I think similarly as leaders, we can do the same in terms of knowing that sometimes we have to be really hands-on. We got to be very present. We got to micromanage and direct. And sometimes there is a season, so to speak, where we step back and we work more collaboratively or we let someone else take the lead on a project and that those all can be very regenerative, not just for the outputs and the results that we want, but also for the quality of the culture and the environment that our employees or colleagues are working in. Yeah, and the season thinking, that is something that I'm a very, very big fan of and people that have worked with me know that I uh, asked and unasked will bring it up uh, the four directions, the four wind directions, and all the seasons that are connected with it. And what I find, <clears throat> what I find remarkable, I don't know if that's it's the same uh, uh, on your side of the world, but uh, in winter we tend to work the hardest in companies, right? There's so much, so much stress around deadlines at the end of the year. The books need to be closed, new projects need to be started. Where's the budget? We need to finish the budget. There's so much stuff going on, and then we we force ourselves. While the days are shortest, um, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, it, it, you know, in the in the worst days, at eight o'clock or eight thirty in the morning, 
it's still dark and it's dark again at five in the afternoon and, and you want to be productive and, and work hard and feel energized, you won't because, you know, it's just not it's just not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. We're in some ways fighting the natural rhythms of things. And it's not to say that we always necessarily need to follow exactly the external seasons that we're a part of, but knowing that in an organization or business, there needs to be a period of rest or that to know that like contraction is a natural part of, um, of seasons and cycles that all businesses and organizations and communities will go through. And so it's important that we really kind of honor and prioritize that. Before we start encouraging people to just basically do less, uh, there is a term that uh, that uh, that you um, uh, you have made me familiar with, and I I think it's beautiful. But I will allow you to introduce it uh, because it's so beautiful, and you and you put it on my path, and I've been using it on and off, like asked and unasked. I'll be just bringing it up to people. It's called both and. Uh, first, first maybe for people that have never heard of this term. How do we spell both and? Because the first few times uh, that I came across, I actually spelled it uh, wrong. So tell us about it. Then. Well, I just want to acknowledge that I was actually about to jump in there and say that this seems a perfect time to bring up that uh, language and notion. So we're on the same page. So it's spelled B-O-T-H-A-N-D. And it speaks how two things can be true simultaneously. And I think this is a little contrary to how our minds and our culture works, which is much more dualistic. It's either or black or white, good or bad, this or that. Whereas both and more stems and we find it continually in the natural world. So for example, there can be cooperation and competition at the same time. There can be expansion and contraction. Death can uh, you know, regenerate and be a source of life. So two things can be true simultaneously. And I think it really helps us navigate some of the environments that every person and certainly leaders are going to find, which is like there's complexity and there's uncertainty and there's change and tension and interconnectedness. And if we're trying to make something either this or that, it's black or white, I think it ends up being really limiting and it's not necessarily relationally affirmative. And I think it can stifle creativity as opposed to can we hold two things, two tensions or polarities at the same time. And in so far as doing that, I think one, it enables us to handle problem solving much more effectively. We can pursue multiple angles or paths at the same time. Not to mention, as I mentioned uh, before, that it's uh, relationally helpful so that an employee can have their experience and I as a leader can have mine and we're not invalidating the other, but it also doesn't mean that we can't take action. But Dennis, I did an MBA and this my MBA brain is cooking right now because <laughs> you're frying my brain because the MBA brain says this is not possible, Dennis. If when I work in a company, it needs to it needs to be this or that. There is there is one truth. There is one path. No, I'm sorry. That is that is too simplistic to say it like that. There's not one path, but there is ultimately there is a best choice. Let's let's put it that way. There's not there's not just one way to do it. There's obviously multiple ways to do a project to to reach the ends to to a to a goal or to a problem that we're solving but we are always looking at least my mba brain is always looking for the best way the most lean the most agile the most 
So how how do how do these where how does both end? Can both end be part of my MBA brain? Absolutely. I mean, I think it actually enhances and enriches whatever path we may take. Because you're right. Ultimately, a decision needs to be made. We have to discern what we think is the best strategy. However, it could... Instead of saying, well, it's either only this path or only that path, we can say, well, I'm going to pick path A, but I recognize there's a couple of things in path B that are really valuable. And I want to take those and integrate them into path A. So that might be an example. Or if you're in a group uh, session, maybe with colleagues or employees, and you're trying to think of what is the best path. You could tell a couple of people who really believe in that path B. You can say, listen, I really want to acknowledge how much you care about it. I want to acknowledge some of the validity of the ideas and the insights you have there. And we're going to go with path A. Now, just that very fact, even if you didn't integrate anything from this path B, but just acknowledging and validating the other side can help those very same colleagues and employees feel like they're included, feel like they're a part of a process and it helps to get buy in. Or another example uh, randomly is if anyone has the experience of maybe ever having to let someone go. You can acknowledge, hey, I see that you're trying. I see that you're working hard. I know that you care. I realize also this might be very hard for you. And we have to go in a different direction. But I think even just that um, lets us hold two things, but it conveys something to other people where there's still respect and dignity, even if, for example, you know, we might have to let them go. Uh, so co- competition and cooperation can work together in the same in the same sphere, in the same room. They can be part of the same thing. Um, yeah, and it, it, this happens. So also, for instance, when I was coaching somebody last week and who said that I cannot be certain and affirmative and have a strong, like grounded attitude and be uncertain at the same time. Right. So because we are born and raised with the idea that you are either A or B, there's there's a million um, personality type tests that say you you are this. And they always say in the introduction, it's not necessarily what you are, but you have a tendency to do certain things. But the way people remember it is you are yellow, you are red, you are blue, you are MBTI, you are ENFG, you are, you know, you whatever. So you are a certain thing. So you, we, so this is also what I think where both end comes in play, right? So we, we can be both things at the same time. Yeah, exactly. It ties into something that a key, well, let me backtrack and say that I think a key part of eco-psychology is understanding living systems and living systems can be ecological. They can be who we are is a series of systems, not to mention organizations, businesses, communities, those are living systems as well. And so I draw a lot of inspiration in my work from some of the key tenets of living systems. And for example, one of them is that fixity is not necessarily helpful. And while we can have our convictions and we can stand firmly in what is true for us, but to think that there is just fixed, uh, like fixity mindset, I actually don't necessarily think helps leaders nearly as much. And rather it's understanding the whole and that I can be more prone towards being very assertive, for example. But as part of the whole of who I am, that also doesn't mean that I'm incapable of being receptive, that I'm incapable of being quiet. And so I think wholeness is another really important term for everyone is to embrace Mm -hmm. the whole. And it's actually uh, the etymological root of words like healing and health and therapy and holiness is to embrace the totality. And I think when we can do that, we become much more effective. 
and and how do we do this because i i feel you <laughs> i i understand the concept i i i feel it resonating inside of me i think like yes yes this is true but then i'm also thinking like i said in the introduction before we hit the record button um i'm also looking for like a practical application of all these beautiful things that we're saying so how if we are in a company how do we approach things as a whole? What, what, what happens then? Well, I think there is a tendency for groupthink in a company, or you have maybe a small centralized leadership uh, committee, for example, and they just, they have their idea, but they, that it is limited just by virtue of who's in there and maybe some pre-existing beliefs or constructs and values. And so an example of that would be of brainstorming for example, or mm -hmm. inviting other people to participate. The more input and information that we can contribute to the whole of our thinking process, the more diversity that there is. I think the more we can move past some of the groupthink, move past some of our blind spots that maybe we might not necessarily be aware of. So just as a really practical example, when strategizing on something, to invite more of the whole in to give input, to consider diverse ideas, to really embrace creative, free-flowing thinking, not necessarily that it'll always yield a better answer, but we have more access to the totality of ideas and possibilities that we might not otherwise have thought of. How does that land with you? Does that and, feel? Yeah, <laughs> that feels good. But and I'm also thinking a lot of people know this. It's it's being described in books about brainstorming as well. But we we pass the stage so quickly because. If we say oh, we need to brainstorm, we need to brainstorm. We need to hear all the voices in the room. You know how difficult that is. I worked with a, uh, I had an introduction course on deep deep democracy. So deep democracy is trying trying to bring up the unheard voices in the room, like the the minority voices. Maybe in a group of even one uh, one hundred people, if two people have a certain different opinion, it's allowed to be heard, and we we have all kinds of techniques to bring that up. And I've, I feel I'm a quite an experienced facilitator of, of group meetings and, and brainstorms and discussions and trainings. And when I try to apply this, it is so hard. It is so hard to bring the diversity in the room and see the, the, the take the wholeness perspective on, on things. So before people are listening to this and thinking like, yeah, yeah, okay, we need to brainstorm, fine, I'm already doing that. Challenge yourself a little bit more to bring more voices in the room and even maybe bring the same voices in the room, but make sure that everybody is really heard. That is that is super hard to do. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it starts with the intention and the effort, but it's not necessarily that it can ever be done perfectly. Uh, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? But I think also uh, some of what I talk about is having a process and we commit to that process and to follow mm -hmm. that through but it doesn't always mean that it's perfect. You know, you mentioned earlier Totten's quote and about wildness. Well, I talk about wildness and saying that we need to embrace the messy. I think a lot of times, especially in big organizations and businesses, you know, we want it very clean and neat and tidy and structured and ordered and controlled. And, you know, everyone's gotten my gist by now. But I think to yeah. embrace the messiness, to embrace the imperfection and to know that that actually can be really generative. And it's not to say that we just want... Um, I might have inappropriate language, so I'm trying to think of different words, but it's not to say that we it's want okay. it totally out of control. It's not to say we want it completely mm -hmm. disorganized, 
But I think to know, and here's another term I use, is edges. Like we all, both individually as well as kind of culturally in organizations and business, like there are edges and blind spots. And I think to the extent that we can be aware of those and have that intention or create processes and systems to try and counteract that, it moves the needle forward. It moves the ball forward, um, even if it's not in and of itself totally changing how we do things. And I think that's also what uh, Totten means by wildness, or at least the way I understood it. Wildness is not necessarily wild and unorganized. Uh, it is a bit unorganized because we're spinning a little bit out of control, quote unquote. But wildness is also like the inner fire that we all have, the inner motivation that we all have to do things. If you look at, if you look at animals in nature, so for instance, I have a vole in my garden, or a group of voles, I believe, because there are quite a lot of holes. So, but this vole, I'm I'm seeing that as as uh, as a form of inner wildness because it's not just going around and trying to find food. Obviously, that is the way we sometimes see it, and it can be very annoying because there is a day, and I'm aware of that, that he is going to find a way to my basement where all the food is, through all kinds of holes, and maybe, you know, doesn't matter. But the the pure like endurance this animal has to go around and make it make this little plot that he has created on my plot uh, the best for him and his family or her and her family that is just remarkable because first i was like you know putting some shoveling some sand back into the holes and you know trying to put some some wire even to to refrain to from that from him to to go there and now I started to to work a little bit with garlic because I don't want to bring him too close to my house and that animal is just unstoppable there's so he creates holes like 2 centimeters from the hole that was there and i'm not it's not just a cool story about my farm and a vole but it's also to show that in nature that wildness for me is also related to like endurance, motivation to go out there to, and to really do what you feel is right because it's so hard for us to do that. And a vol obviously has a much less complicated world to live in, but in our lives it's so hard to do what we really love, right? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I think fundamentally we all want to have that type of conviction and passion that that vol does, hopefully not necessarily destroying your garden, but to know that yeah, I mean, when you said that wildness to me, and I think it's different for everyone. And so what might be wild energy for one person could be very different for someone else. But to know that it has so much aliveness and vitality in that energy, whatever it is, and that we need that. We need that for our own health. Not to mention that I think when we can bring that passion into our work and into our other areas of our lives, like that's really generative, not only for us, but those uh, ecosystems that we might be a part of as well. And as you were talking, it, it got me thinking about some other like qualities that I referenced. Like one is that we know the healthiest ecosystems are the most diverse ones. And this is not to say that we want tons of voles and uh, wildlife taking over our garden, but more generally to know that diversity is actually a really important principle. And, you know, we can think of monocultures and such. Those are most prone to disease and they're not as performing as well. Uh, the other one is to know that that vole epitomizes adaptation. And I think any great leader, anybody who wants to 
move through life most effectively has to be able to shift and adapt strategies, uh, even if it's just moving, you know, two centimeters away from where you blocked their first hole. <laughs> something on the list that I, I, we need to discuss because there's a lot of people that I talk to at least and when I talk to them about my work one of the first reactions that I get is but isn't it scary to go outside or what are we actually going to do where do I where do I go to the toilet if we go you know even one day in the forest from nine to five which is just a normal working day where do I go to the toilet what do we eat what do I do? You know, what, what if we run into more where I live? What if we what if we run into wild boar? What if we run into, you know, whatever? There's a thing called the tolerance of discomfort and it's being referenced also in your courses, but a lot of other courses as well. Maybe first just to get to get a grip of what it actually means. What is the tolerance of discomfort and why is it important? Well, I'll, I'll tell you an anecdote where I first learned it. I went to graduate school for counseling psychology with a really holistic, integral focus in California on the other side of the United States where I am. And one of my teachers said that the best indicator of any type of outcome you want, and for one person it might be like personal healing, and for someone else it might have more effective relationships, or for maybe some of your listeners it's wanting to be a more effective, listen, uh, more effective leader, is we have to be willing to be uncomfortable. And a lot of our culture, not to mention kind of just our predisposition psychologically, is we like safety and convenience and ease and control. And, and that's understandable. It's not in and of itself problematic, but what it does is it often means that we are very averse or avoidant to areas that might be edgy or uncomfortable. And those might be the very things that we are needing to have the outcomes that we're wanting. And so what this teacher said is that the best indicator of anything you want is building your tolerance and threshold for discomfort. And as opposed to the fixity mindset that I referenced earlier, this is really based on kind of a growth mindset, which is that we can grow and nurture um, these muscles of discomfort. And for some people, it might be vulnerability. For someone else, it might be taking a stand that other people are gonna be really upset about. Uh, and so there can be all different types of examples, but fundamentally, whatever you're wanting, we have to be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable and to face, whether it be the fear, whether it be the boredom, whether it be the ew factor, that like in doing that, we actually build kind of psychological muscles as well as you know, practical and relational ones that are gonna benefit us in so many areas. And how is this a concept of eco-psychology? How, how do we see this in nature? Well, I mean, I think all types, I can't think of, and, and maybe you or a, a listener could think of one. Think, but think I think of my garden again. Well, actually I do. I, go I for it, yeah, chicken. wonderful. So um, I have chicken, right? Two chicken and, uh, and a rooster. And uh, it is springtime, so the rooster is quite a lot on top of the chicken, um, which means the chicken are laying eggs again. And I have, um, 
I've seen one of my chicken sitting longer and longer on her eggs, but eventually jumping off again, like after one or two days goes off. And I started reading up online. So how does, how do, how does this actually work? Which is a very basic biological uh, process, uh, obviously. But what I learned is that the chicken, a chicken can actually die from, from uh, how do you say, hatching her eggs. Uh, or yeah, the, the chicken can die from hatching her eggs. Because basically what, what she will do is she will sit on those eggs and have to endure, has to endure all this, you know, sitting there, not eating, not drinking, not being able to move, just keeping the eggs warm. If the, if the weather is bad, she needs to stay even longer. Sometimes she can go off just a little bit to find some food and water. If it's not near, she will go back because the first and foremost is to keep the eggs warm. And some chicken will actually endure so much of that hardship. So this is very uncomfortable talking about tolerance of discomfort, but they can, they can not eat for 10, 12 days only to have their, their, their eggs uh, warm. Right. So that is, yeah. So it's just, I'm, I keep coming back to my garden. That's, that's <laughs> awesome. I keep coming back to my garden and, and landscape where I live, but I think that's a prime example. And what I was going to say is that off the top of my head, I can't think of an organism or animal that doesn't encounter some type of hardship and discomfort as mm -hmm. part of being alive, as part of survival and procreation and procuring food and such. So I think one that we see it everywhere. I mean, I'm referencing animals, but even if you just think of you know, plants coming out of the ground, there is that tension spot where that seed is starting to emerge and where it pushes through the soil. Even that is a form of tension and discomfort, but it's vitally necessary. And I think then we can also just look at humans experience as part of and in the out of doors. And like, there will be really rainy days. There will be, you know, you're going to get wet. You're going to get cold. You might be scared at some point. And so I think it's really unavoidable ecologically as well as in our experiences with the natural world that there will be discomfort. But if I wasn't willing to be a little bit wet or a little bit hot or maybe at some point uh, a little bit hungry, then I don't enjoy all the beautiful things that the natural world provides either. I, th I think we're pretty on pretty much on the same page here, but <laughs> I know there's a couple of people listening to this and thinking like, yeah, I'll just I'll just stay in my office, look at my plans. You know? Well, and you know, Dan, like that's fine too. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's about so in this ecotherapy program I use, like helping professionals use nature. Like one of the words we use is titrate. And everyone is going to have a different edge. And the idea is to play and engage at that edge, but to not push or power through it because that's where injury and traumatization happens. And so for yeah, some people, they're sure. like, you know what? I don't ever want to go out into the super wild where, they're in, uh, where I live. There's a lot of ticks and Lyme disease. And so some people are like, mm -hmm. I don't want to go so far out or off trail that there's ticks. And that's far be it from me to say, well, you need to or should. But I do think it's okay to say, all right, well, where are you engaging your edge? And maybe it's not outdoors with the ticks, but can you do that relationally? Can you do that uh, at your work environments? And I think similarly, finding ways to be out of doors that titrates, or maybe it's not out of doors, but titrates that edge so that we slowly build up our capacity. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it's, an, you know, another analogy for titration is thinking about running. Uh, if you have never really run before and your goal is to run, 
you know, 10 kilometers, you don't just go off the couch and go do that or you're going to injure yourself. So you start and maybe it's one kilometer and you work with that for a while and then you titrate and build it up. And so I think that is applicable whether we're actually directly using nature or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Let me see. There's so much. Well, I want to I want to ask you a question. Yeah. What are like key aspects of nature that you keep coming back to, whether that be personally or in your work and that might be very literally time out of doors or it could be more kind of principles and qualities uh, that you see in the planet that you incorporate well so this is maybe not necessarily literally from nature um, but then again well let me just explain it so like I said before uh, in this podcast is that I work with the four wind directions a lot actually I've done a vision quest so I've I've uh, I've done a ritual in which I went into a forest for four days and four nights with no food with a little bit of water um, as a, talking about tolerance of discomfort <laughs> um, I felt great though it's, it's completely fine to be without food for four days it's really not a problem but the um, uh, I I went and and did that ritual as part of you know going into myself and understanding where would I want to go in life. I knew I was going to make a step, like moving to a new country, because this was last year, uh, and it, so I did it to to get a sense of direction. So in that way, I was literally in nature. I was in a forest somewhere in the south of France. Um, and the last day of that four days was when the huge floods in Western Europe started. So I had 24 hours of rain and I was on a little island and the water around me kept rising and rising. So the one thing is that I keep going into nature and find these spots for myself in which I can, just like you described your, your, your beautiful rocks that you go swimming and that they had a place for you in your youth as well. So the first thing is, and that is more on the directly interaction with nature part, is that I keep going to places. I have really strong connection with some places around me. So I live in this new place now, and there's one forest here that is it's so beautiful. There's so many flowers that only come out in spring. So it's a very it's a it's a forest that is very special in spring. But what I learned in the days around the fishing quest is that I came across this four winds. Uh, thinking uh, it's it, so the the program that they do there in the south of France is based on Lakota knowledge so the Lakota natives from Northern America um, and it's based on Lakota knowledge and one of the principles of the four winds because we cannot go into all the four winds right now but one of the main principles of this four wind thinking is that there is no single truth and for me that resonates so so I don't know it 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 changed my life thinking that there's no single truth. And what I, what I mean by that, because I apply it to, my, to me personally. So, so my personal development is now based on the principle that there's no single truth. So what I mean by that is, if I look at myself, for instance, in buying this farm, and we're here now for the first month, and we come across all these problems, right? Because we, like, the, like I told you, the roof is not as good as we thought, and you know, the, the insulation of the windows and there's wallpaper stories and there's everything. 
And there's a part of me while I was in the garden, so that is what also a place for me to, to come back to myself and think about these principles. While I was in the garden uh, preparing my land for my regenerative garden, um, I was thinking, why am I so stressed? Why am I so stressed and, and angry even at the fact that things are not going, that, that, uh, that I feel that we're only running into more problems and I feel so bad about them because there are sometimes you run into a problem and you, you think like, well, I'll fix it, no problem. But some of these problems, they kept piling up somewhere deep inside of me. And I thought like, why is this? It feels, it feels hard, it, it's painful. And what I come to realize is that while I was working in my garden, I thought, but okay, well, what if I apply the principle of there's no, there's not just a single truth. I can look at it from this perspective and think like, oh, there's so many problems and oh, we need to spend so much money on finding people who can fix the roof and I don't know what. But then there's also, I think like, so I went through all the four wind directions and I looked at myself and I thought, but emotionally, it's not just, this is not just mentally, this is not just a state of like things, and this is not just an action list problem thing. This is not just 10 things you need to do in your house, there's something else going on. What is happening to you emotionally? And I came across the thought that I thought, oh, other people might think that I'm, I don't know, an idiot or I'm naive or I am, you know, we are so hard on ourselves. Let's start with me first. Um, I can be very hard on myself. And while I was working in the garden, I realized one of my truth, uh, truths out of these four wind directions is that I'm looking at myself and thinking like, you're naive, you're an idiot. How, how could you have bought the farm and not realized that there would be tons of work to do? And then the moment you realize that, then suddenly everything becomes much lighter because then I was like, yeah, of course. And I can say to myself, ha ha, what an idiot. He didn't know it. And then I could just move on and think like, well, maybe I, maybe I am an idiot, but uh, maybe I'm not, right? Because I don't feel like an idiot and I feel like, okay, whatever is coming our way, we will fix it. Um, yeah, we have plans to fix it and we'll, we'll make it work and it's a beautiful place. And suddenly, you know, suddenly it's all it's all flowers and sunshine and it's all happiness, right? So it's, yeah, this was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for sharing. I just, I felt, first off, I nodded my head because I could relate to uh, much of what you described as well. And just a, a couple of thoughts came up related to that though somewhat indirectly. One is this idea that there is no uh, one fixed truth. And it made me think of a mm -hmm. kind of, eco-psychological teaching I come back to, which is that the context and the environment matters. And uh, a little anecdote of that that I describe is where I live in Maine, we get pretty serious winters. And so, but I tell my kids, I have two children uh, ages five and two, and I talk to them, I'm like, well, but it's all relative. Like I can say we got a snowstorm and that means one thing for us, but that could mean something very different if let's say you lived in Alaska. Or if we have someone who lives in a very warm climate and they said, oh, it's been so cold lately. And you hear that maybe it's been, you know, 10, 12 degrees. And it's like, oh gosh. So everything is so relative and contextual from where we start. And that that doesn't invalidate someone's experience. That doesn't invalidate someone, let's say lives in Florida and says, oh, it's been so cold. And mind you, you know, we never get temperatures like that until June. Yeah. Like that's their experience. And so I think it's very, uh, it's, it's humbling and it helps me not feel so centric of like this black and white it is or it isn't. Uh, 
not to mention that uh, two other thoughts. One, I just find being in my garden, especially with fruit trees, that it helps me get into a much more mindful and open-hearted state. And I think for the subject at hand here why we're gathered about leadership is that I think to the extent that we can be mindful and the extent that we can be open-hearted, it will just have infinite benefits. And another quality that I might throw out is that we're in touch with our own truth, which I call instinct. And to the extent we have our own instinct, that's going to be different. And it might still compel us to still purchase this farm that has a lot of work. And that doesn't mean it's the truth for someone else. But if that's our instinct, if that's our kind of intuitive answer, then we just got to trust and go with it and we make the best of it. And I don't think we ever regret when we've acted based on our instinct. Dennis, larger than self. It sounds beautiful in itself, but um, what does it mean? That's a, that's a great question. And even though I had some sense that it was coming, I, I'm still been thinking about it. And I think what it is, is that we often have a very small sense of self and who we are and the experience either of family or community or those that are on our in-group. And I think it ends up being really limiting. And so when we make decisions and who really values and matters, it's a pretty small circle. And I think Ultimately, those on the outside of the circle usually end up getting harmed, perhaps more than we intended. And so I think fundamentally, just from like science and ecology, that we know that everything is on the deepest level, very interconnected and inseparate. And I think the opportunity is to take that lens and apply it to how we think about the self and the identity and to expand it enough to include uh more than we would otherwise. And for me, I try and think of, you know, these fellow relations that I have ecologically in the natural world and to see that even though they might be very different than me, like on some level, there is a degree of interconnectedness. Or when we are making decisions maybe within an organization of what our goals are or what are the impacts are, is to expand those circles uh, of consideration to include a much wider sense of self and community and belonging to which we're a part of. And when we do that, I don't think it necessarily has to preclude really positive outcomes and getting the results we want, but I think it minimizes harm and increases benefit for those that would otherwise be on the outside. How does that sound for you? Yeah, it made me think of uh, of one of the recordings that we did. So one of the episodes that, that has been published before our recording is that I've been talking to Wim van Aken, who is a guy who knows much more than me about native native culture and native native ways of thinking, like interacting with nature and also what it means for leadership. And he said, and that is something that, that stuck with me also to, to this day and, and probably also for the rest of my life, is that we need to be aware of the fact that the air that we breathe has actually been air that has gone through our ancestors and will be... Um, will be part of life of our children and their children and their children, but also uh, all the animals that lived, that are living now and that will be living. The water that we drink, same thing. The stones that we come across, the, the, the plants that are growing, like everything, this whole circle of life 
it's not just a circle of life that in the sense that you know we 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 grow we grow up we become strong and big we become smaller we die and then we are regenerated into something else it also means that everything we touch and everything we do has an impact on the generations after us um and has already been impacted by the generations before us yeah that's beautifully said and Indigenous cultures do a wonderful job attesting to that. And I heard a saw a video recently of a man named Tom Chi who was talking somewhat similarly. Uh, and he was saying that like the very air that we're breathing recently was part of a flower on the other side of the globe or the water. And like, I don't remember the exact uh, percentages of composition of us, but like a very large percentage of who we are, relatively speaking, is water and liquid. And that that's like cycling and flowing through and our cells are constantly changing. And so this sense of self that we often think of as so fixed is already so fluid, um, not to mention that, uh, yes, we're all born with our bodies and our genetics, but so much of the rest of who we are is a product of relationships and experiences and interactions with so much of the world. And to see that in that way, they are a part of us. And as we say mm-hmm. at the Eco Psychology Initiative, like we are a part of nature. Like humans are one of the organisms and animals that comprise the world, but also nature is a part of us. And so all of a sudden, this question of identity really becomes very uh, fluid, and that we see that we're woven into much wider webs than we're possibly aware of. And so, to the extent that when making decisions, we take into account. Um, the larger belonging that we're a part of, I think is really important so that that way there is future generations as opposed to what we have now, which is like immediate gratification. Um, Don't think about the future. And there's a lot of waste. Another example is like in nature, there is no waste at all. Like everything gets in some ways composted or transformed. Whereas our cultures are not just wasteful in terms of products and packaging, but even just uh, talent and ideas and people. Oh yeah, yeah. And it, it so while you were talking, it, I got angry actually. Not at you, <laughs> but I just angry at the thought of, like, just like you described in the, your last sentence, like how dare how dare you? I just I just can't imagine, and I don't care because it's my podcast, so I'm gonna say it. How dare you, like, not see life as like as a whole, as a whole, like, not wasting, not even so. Even if you think of your direct impact, just like you, where you started to explain this uh, larger than self uh, concept, even if you if you look at direct impact, so the things that we do to, for instance, our clients or our colleagues, uh, how dare you? How dare you uh, uh, have no respect actually for what is the beauty and the essence of of nature when it comes to people, when it comes to plants, but also if we make it bigger to the generations before us of people, plants, animals, whatever, every life on earth and living and non-living. And how dare you even do that to generations after us? And well, and I can make it even bigger. How dare you do it to the universe? How dare you? I don't, uh, yeah, so sorry, I'm just, I just got a little angry. Well, I'm glad if you get angry, then I get to get angry too. And I don't blame okay, cool. you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's infuriating. And I think so many of the issues that are facing our planet right now are, an expression of the wastefulness and of the really small, uh, simplistic notions of not only the self, but the in-groups and out-groups. And it just, 
it's so unnecessary. It's misaligned with like the very ways that the universe mm -hmm. operates. Yeah. Uh, we, we could always say it's unnatural, but that would be a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So Dennis, um, imagine somebody on a train listening to this podcast right now. I'm pretty sure we are in the second, second part because this probably will be split into two episodes. <laughs> When you're listening to the second episode of this conversation with Dennis Kiley, you're listening, you're sitting on the train, you are a consultant going to a cultural transformation job uh, in a big building somewhere in the center of the Netherlands. You hop off the train, you want to contribute to a better world because you thought, oh man, there's so many beautiful concepts in nature that we can apply in our daily lives and even in our leadership or even in our corporations. Where do I start? What do I do? Oh, you couldn't have given me an easy question to go out on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know it's a hard question. But. I think it starts with connectedness. And I think mm -hmm. it starts with a humility and a curiosity to show up. And I mentioned systems earlier, but to show up to each system, not assuming anything. And as you said earlier, like there's no right answer. And so if I bring that humility and that curiosity to show up to each environment and ecosystem to say, all right, what can I learn from this? What are the needs and what are the challenges and how can I be in support of the conditions conducive to life? And so in that way, some of it, and maybe said differently, is how can I get things to flow better? And so sometimes that's like removing uh, obstacles and blockages. Sometimes it might be, you know, to use your garden, it's to weed and such. But other times it's like, okay, what new seeds need to be planted? What needs to be cultivated and germinated here that will be of help? And so I think when we can listen to that context and let it kind of inform us of like what's really wanting to emerge, then we can act in support of that. And like I said, continuing like, how can we nurture the conditions conducive to life? And I think part of that is listening. Part of that is being really mindful and connected and open-hearted so that we can tap into the whole of the information that is available and the needs. But I think it's also partly being in touch with, I mentioned earlier, like our own instinct and to let that guide us. Um, but fundamentally, maybe a different way of saying this is, is being in the question, is not assuming that we have some fixed formulaic answer that we're going to just prescribe, you know, like at your farm. Like you first have to know the soils and the terrain from which then you realize, okay, how can I step forth? Because even if you have that vision for that organization or that garden, I think it necessitates being in the not knowing. And to say that we don't know at first, from which then we actually get the wisdom that is needed. So somebody's stepping off the train right now, going to his or her first meeting, gets a question and says, I don't know. <laughs> I'll just listen to you guys and feel whatever is necessary. I will listen to myself and I'll be humble and see whatever is necessary. What would you say to them? <laughs> yeah. I was, I was just thinking like you're probably the first guest to to give me that question back. Like, what, what would your what would your answer to that question be? And I probably in different podcasts I would probably give different answers. Um, but I think where to start 
um, besides on what you said, because I think that's beautifully said, and, and that is also something that's on my mind a lot. But yeah, no, I, I, I keep coming back to what I've already said in this podcast, is that understanding the world just from different perspectives, there is no single truth, and there is a seasonality to everything like there is a circle of there's a circle of life there's a circle of doing things and you can look at yourself from different perspectives no well yes so that but maybe now that i come to think of it i so i've been i've had the courage lately to to say to new clients that don't know me that i work on self love because i think so maybe if you get off the train if you get off the train, you, you need to show up at work, you go through that door, the first thing you do is, and this sounds super cheesy, I know it, but you've, you're in this podcast for one and a half hours now, so you're fine, we can do this. Uh, you walk through that door and you say, I'm, I'm just okay with whoever I am. This is, this is who I am, this is what I bring, this is what I bring, and I'll try, I'll do my best, I will apply all the stoic virtues that have been granted to me, um, but this is who I am, and uh, I, 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 I love myself. And that is, so for me, that is the, the, the toughest question in, in life so far. And I'm, I'm glad that at 37 years old now, I can say that I, I love myself with all the difficulties that come across and all the anger sometimes and the stress and that comes with it. But I'm happy that I can go into the garden, look at it from different perspectives and say to myself, <laughs> sometimes you're just an idiot and make mistakes and we can just move on and be happy about it and you know it's it's okay it's okay it's okay you're okay that's that's the only thing you need to know yeah that's beautifully said i think to to fundamentally land in the truth of who we are and to be okay with that and to love that is the greatest gift we can give ourselves and then that gives other people permissions and that lights the way for others and our very place of spark can be the source of catalyst and spark for others and i spent a lot of my life wanting to be pleasing and accepted by everyone and to be everything for everyone and you know what fundamentally i wasn't as happy nor do i think i was as effective as when I just say, all right, I'm going to be me and I'm going to bring that forward and it won't be for everyone and I will land on my face, but there will be times that I really can make a much more meaningful difference because of being in my authenticity, not to mention that I'm much more happy and fulfilled, which I think is, you know, so important. Yeah. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, it's still morning, I believe, where you are. Yep, I've got another half an hour before it's noontime. Okay, so what's uh, what's on the schedule today? What's on the schedule today? I am going to go finish working on a uh, training that I'm offering on psychological biomimicry. I'm going to get out my real passion uh, that I'm learning. I've mentioned before is fruit trees, and I'm really good at growing mm -hmm. them and planting them, and but I haven't been very good at pruning them. So I'm learning all okay. about pruning, and I'm going to get some time this afternoon to go out and prune my fruit trees. Um, yeah. All right. Well, have a, have a good day. Enjoy. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. And I'm really honored and grateful uh, that you and I got to have a conversation and to connect with your community. We have covered a lot of concepts in this podcast. You can find a summary of these concepts in the show notes, but what I hope is that you will go outside into nature to experience 
these concepts yourself. Go outside, use your senses and see what nature is telling you because what I've learned from Dennis as well is that nature knows the way. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with friends and family. And also, leave a review. I would love to hear your thoughts on these concepts and also obviously on the podcast. And don't forget, please go outside because nature knows the way.